Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to go to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to go to chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, or sorry, did I say Mark? Go one before, Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read starting at verse 9. If you have it there, follow along with me. As Jesus went on from there, pause here, the there, what's the there, the there, anytime you come to those, you need to back it up and figure what that is. The there was he had just finished ministering. A man who was lame now was walking. He told him, pick up his mat and walk, and he walked. That had just finished happening. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Let's just ask the Lord to guide our conversation this morning. Lord, we just pray that from this text, your word would speak to our hearts. God, we ask that By the end of this next little while, we would be more drawn to serve you in a deeper way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The story here is an interesting story if you understand the times. Matthew's a tax collector. Tax collectors today are nothing much more than an annoyance. Back then, they were much worse than that. Tax collectors were like gangsters back then. These people were legal because they were hired by Rome, but they were of your people. It would be like your neighbor, like your brother, like your, like your son, who Rome has got to with some big money kickbacks that if they would extort, if you would extort, if you would bribe, if you would basically steal money from your people you get a good kickback from it. So it's one thing for us to be angry at Rome. Rome, yeah, we don't like Rome. But it's another thing when you have one of your own sticking it to you. This is what the tax collectors were doing. One of your own, that what's doing this to you. So so hated were these people because they they betrayed family and friends and neighbors. They were betrayers. Was it illegal? No, Rome set the legal state. Was it wrong? It was wrong on every front. You know that not everything that's legal is right. You know that, don't you? Not everything that's legal is right. There are some things that are legal that is wrong. And this was wrong. And Matthew, he, tax collectors were so despised, they often had bodyguards 24-7. They were hated, despised. Their lives were in jeopardy because they were bad people. They knew it. Whatever reason they chose to do it, but they did it. Jesus is having dinner at this guy's place. And his friends, other tax collectors and sinners are coming in, joining in this meal. 
wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly in the wall at that meal? What was the conversation like around the table? Well, today, I think we're going to understand a little bit more about Jesus because the topic of what we're on today is connecting with Jesus. How do we connect with Jesus? So these people were attracted to Jesus. They were a renegade group. On the other side, there's Pharisees. And this Pharisee steps up and says, how come, Jesus, you hang out with these despised people and all their friends? I mean, how can you do this? Do you not understand what they do? They're bad people. And they were telling, going after Jesus with this. Now, Jesus then responded. He says, you know, it's not to the, it's not to the healthy I was sent. It's to the sick. And these people are sick. But Jesus wasn't just referring to the tax. I don't know. I would love to have seen how Jesus, you know, he probably was pointing when he said this. And where was he pointing when he said this? We often read this and we think he's pointing at the tax collectors and the sinners. I have a sneaking suspicion he was pointing right at the Pharisee when he was saying this. The sick need help. And you see, the Pharisees, they didn't think they were sick. The Pharisees thought they were pretty good, thank you. They had their life in play. They were right, like God's up here. They're, they're right next to God. Tax collectors and sinners, they're, they're down there somewhere. But they're right up next to God. Look at how they live. They do all the right things. They look good, talk good, do all the ceremonies good. And if you question their goodness, just ask them. They'll tell you how good they really are. If you question how humble they are, they'll tell you how humble they are. By the way, if anybody tells you how humble they are, they're not what? They're not humble. If you want to know how many good deeds they did, they'll, they'll give you the list in big print. They'll tell you all the good things they're doing. That's the Pharisees. Jesus was implying, listen, I've come for you too. Here's something. Why is it that often people have to go through brokenness and despisedness to turn to Jesus and those who things are going well tend not to? It happens over and over again. Matter of fact, it's one of the one of the fundamental criticisms towards Christianity, that Christianity are for the downtrodden people. But it's for everybody. I guess one of the things is when you're downtrodden, when your life reverses, you get the diagnosis from the doctor, a family member leaves you and you're wounded and broken. Whatever the situation, you've, you've, lost, your, you've lost your retirement money, whatever. And then, then at that time, you become desperate, you reach out to Jesus. But sometimes those are very short-lived. They don't last long because as soon as things pick up, because he does bless, as soon as things do pick up, you tend to forget him again. So that's not a real sure sign of a follower of Jesus. A better sure sign is when you feel the prodding, when you hear the message, when the opportunity comes, when the door opens, go through that door. If you're doing really well, the business is doing great, you're healthy, family looks happy, that's the time to most embrace faith in Jesus Christ not when it falls apart. The Pharisees weren't getting it. I want to talk about the, the theme today is connecting with Jesus. And this is a consistent theme. And by the way, if you tracking with us, we're starting the beginning of the second book of the series of Connecting and available copies at the Information Center. If you're following us online, uh, just email us and we can set something up. I want to go to the book of Luke. Would you turn there, please, in your Bibles? Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 1, chapter 2, is the most famous passage of the Christmas story. And sorry, we're not going to do the Christmas story today. We're waiting. We have to wait another month, right? The Christmas story is coming. 
But I want to go just past, post-Christmas. So we're going to go to the end of chapter 2. I'm not going to read verse by verse. It would just take too much time in the time that's been allotted us this morning. But if we go to chapter 2 in Luke, and Luke has a lot to say about, remember, here's our theme, connecting with Jesus. How do we connect with Jesus? I discovered this. I've always thought the Apostle Paul was the, the, the major contributor as writer of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul has written, if you do word for word, the Apostle Paul has written 24% of what's in the New Testament. Luke has written 28%. I found that interesting when I first learned that. Luke actually surpassed Apostle Paul in how much he wrote in the New Testament. The Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of, I call it the Gospel of Acts, the Acts of the early church, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, comprised actually more than actually the writings of the Apostle Paul. So Luke has a lot to say about Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He's a doctor. He's a very sophisticated mind. His reasoning is sophisticated. And he writes down, he has some very interesting things to say about Jesus. We're going to parachute into the last part of chapter 2 of Luke. And in this chapter, we're going to break the life of Jesus into four segments this morning very quickly. First segment, his early years. Second, his teenage years. Third, his baptism. Fourthly, his anointed as the Messiah. Four segments of Jesus. It starts off in the end of chapter 2, a story where Jesus is in Jerusalem with his family. It's the Passover. People of the Jewish tradition would come and they would celebrate the Passover together in Jerusalem. At the end of the Passover celebrations, all the families head back home. Home for Jesus. Anybody remember? I'm going to try to keep you awake here this morning. Home for Jesus, where, where, was, where was his home? Nazareth. Okay, his Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but his home was Nazareth. And so they're on the way back to Nazareth. They're traveling in a caravan. Now, a caravan is not like, you know, the caravan that comes and you have a week-long caravan fair. That's, picture, though, is a group of people traveling together. That's the caravan. And typically, it's family, relatives, and friends. There could be quite a large group traveling together. They would travel together largely because there were a lot of road bandits in their day. The family's heading back to Nazareth. It's a long journey. The end of the first day, the family's setting up to go to bed at night, and Joseph and Mary look around, and Jesus is missing. Now, you'd say, how can they go a whole day and not notice it? Well, you know, Lori and I, we had a family in a church one time. They had a lot of kids, and they actually went home from church after the service they, they, it took 25 minutes for them to travel to their home. They got home from church, and they changed their clothes into everyday clothes. They came to the dinner table. They were at the dinner table, and they were well into their meal when they noticed one of their kids was missing. And we had a very loving family from our church bail the kid out, take the kid home, and set it up so that the child eventually got back to their parents. So it can happen. I mean, that's just a one, that's a nucleus family right there. Um, and they lost Jesus. Have you ever, mom and dad, how many here, just nod your head. If, if you've lost your kids at any point in time, go like this. Have you lost your kids? Okay. Those who didn't go like that, God, you're just exceptional parents. Um, we did. And it is a horrific moment. Um, we were in Disney World. We lost our daughter. I don't know how long. I'm, oh, it's Jonas. Sorry, my kids could be watching. Sorry. Um, it was my, 
which doesn't surprise me because he was really hard to keep contained. Uh, and it was like, I don't know how long, Lori, two, three, four, five minutes. It wasn't very long. And it was horrible experience. It was a horrible experience. And some of you have lost your kids for much longer than that. Uh, at the end of the day, Jesus isn't there. He's 12 years old. So he's not like a toddler. He's 12 years old. He's not with them. Where is he? When's the last time we saw him? Right? You begin to back it up, back it up, back it up. Jerusalem. Oh, we've traveled all day. Turn around, back to Jerusalem, they went. Now, Jesus would have had some younger siblings. I'm going to guess parents probably left him with relatives to continue on so they can make haste and get back to Jerusalem. They get back to Jerusalem, it's now two days. And they start looking for Jesus. The Bible says it takes an entire day, they can't find him. Whole day. They get to the end of the third day, they find Jesus. Where do they find him? He's in the temple. That's where they left. Now, really... Isn't that what they say? If you lose a child, go back to where you last saw them. So they find Jesus in the temple. And it's a very tense moment. In one way, one would ask, Jesus, aren't you being a bit negligent? I mean, shouldn't you be with your parents? And they certainly felt this. I mean, think about it. They didn't just lose their 12-year-old oldest child. They lost the Messiah. They knew who he was. I mean, he was immaculate conception, right? They knew who Jesus was. So it's not just, oops, we lost our kid. We've lost God, you know, kind of thing. Like, that's a kind of a serious moment. And so the story picks up. They go to Jesus, and the Bible in verse Luke 2.48, Luke, again, he's a doctor. He's very precise. Luke 2.48 tells us the parents were astonished when they saw Jesus, that he had done what he did. They were astonished. Now, that word astonished means, to me, it just means, <gasps> that that's, you know, that's astonished. Really, the writers really miss the word here. The word astonished actually in the Greek means it's the word uh, ekpleto. It means to strike out, force out by a blow, found only in the sense of knocking one out of their senses. It's like winding up and knocking someone in the head and knocking them out. That's what the word is. And the writers said, astonished? Like we kind of lost something there. That's how it felt to mom and dad. It was like they got knocked out. They got knocked out. And so when they went to Jesus, we understand, we get this as parents. They find Jesus in the temple and they said to Jesus, why have you treated us like this? Verse 48. And Jesus' response he responds, it suggests he is mystified regarding why they would be so surprised to find him in the temple. He's actually surprised that they are so astonished. He says, verse 49, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now remember, here's the point. We're trying to connect with Jesus today. There's our point. So we're looking at his early life. This is one of the earliest pictures outside of his birth we have of Jesus. And here he is, 12 years old. He's at the temple. And he responds by saying, didn't you know I had to be in my father's business? Now, we lose it in the English. Let me help you walk through this one. The words had to come from a Greek word, dia, D-E-I. comes from that word. It means the inevitable in the nature of things. Jesus is, and never more is this word more literally used. Jesus is saying, that in the nature of things, him and the Father have to be together. Now, when you think about it, it makes sense. 
Jesus, who pre-incarnate in the eons of time was with the Father. And so when he says, didn't you know I had to, I, dia, I, in the inevitable nature of things, I have to be with the Father. I have to be with the Father. In other words, they are a powerful magnet, one to the other. In other words, they are two pieces of the same whole. I had to be with my father. And in some ways, he's saying, Mom and Dad, you should have started here at the temple because I have to be with my father. We're one. That's why I was here. So it's kind of interesting how that word had to is meaning the inevitable nature of two things. The second thing it comes to, it talks about what he was doing when he was in the temple. Uh, after three days, verse 46, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. I want to pause here at the word listening. Listening. You've been around people who don't know the art of listening. <laughs> yeah. They beep, 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 beep. And you try to say something and they cut you off and back at it again. And now, what kind of people do you like to hang with? Somebody who does all the talking or somebody who can actually do some listening? Probably somebody who can do some listening. Jesus was listening. And I don't want us to miss this. Luke saw it so important to make sure we got it. He was listening to them. And I'm going to suggest he still listens. You cannot read through the Gospels and miss Jesus listens. God listens. One of my favorite things in the book of Psalms you know, a lot of chapters in the book of Psalms. You read through the book of Psalms, God is over and over saying, over and over again, speak to me, I am listening. I'm listening to you. I take great delight in that. Not just in prayer, he listens in prayer. And yes, we can use the acronym of the, of the word ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration. So prayer is adoration, it's confession, it's thanksgiving, and it's supplication. That's okay, and I think that's a great acronym. But sometimes it's just talking. And you know, I spend a lot of time just talking with him. And I talk out loud. And yeah, if anybody saw me, probably thought I was losing it. But I'd like to talk to him. I like to talk to him. Pray to him. I supplicate. I petition. But sometimes I just talk things out with him. I talk things out here at the church. I talk things out in my office. I talk things out at home. I talk with him. Why? Because he listens. He listens. He listens. The second part to this is it goes verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. He not only listens, but he answers. He has the answers to life, and he answered them. Now, don't you think if a little 12-year-old boy, boy could answer difficult questions by great scribes and teachers. Surely you and I can trust the immortal one seated at the right hand of God this very moment to make intercession for us. Do not think you can trust him. He can answer you too. He answers me. This is the Jesus in his growing up years. Makes you want to connect with him, doesn't it? Well, let's go to his teenage years. We're not given a whole lot of detail, and I wish we were. I really do. It would have probably got me out of a mess when I was a teenager, and it would have helped me navigate my own kids' teenage years if there had been more Scripture on teenagers that there wasn't. 
The scriptures in Jesus' teenage years go very quickly. I mean, Jesus, what were his teenage years like? Did he have pimples? Likely. Like every other teenager. Well, Jesus' his teenage years. Let's go down to verse 52. Here's all we're given. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor and with God and with men. It's not a very big section, but it has four powerful truths. Number one, Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom. The word wisdom in Greek is Sophia. Sophia, let me, let me give definition. He grew in, Sophia means skilled in the affairs of life, practical wisdom, wise management. It also means divine things and deep understanding. As you and I this morning seek to formulate an impression of what Christ was like in his early years, we need to view him as completely practical and deeply spiritual. Sophia. He was completely, pra completely practical, deeply spiritual. In today's terms, let me put it this way. He was a man who could preach an anointed sermon with signs and wonders. And on his way home from church, stop and help someone change their flat tire. That's Jesus. Sophia. He grew in wisdom. Practical management and the deep divine things of God. Both. Wow. That's our Lord. Then it says Jesus grew in stature. What does stature mean? Stature is the word used in Isaiah 53 too. The prophet Isaiah was prophesying the coming Messiah. He said this. Verse 2, the Messiah would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his stature, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Some have said that he was of kind of a comely appearance, but you can't take that from here. Actually, that's not the proper translation of this. The proper translation when it says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, he didn't look like God. That's what it's saying. He didn't look majestic. You've seen the pictures, you know, the old Orthodox pictures, the Catholic pictures. You see Jesus kind of, a, of an effeminate person with a halo around him. No. His stature. He grew in stature. His stature was like anyone else's stature. And then it continues on in, and it says, Jesus grew in favor with God and with men. Let's stop here. Favor with God. Favor with God, number one. I like the picture here because the word favor in Greek is the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, and it's the word for grace. So the word here, favor, grace. Grace with, grace with God. Grace with God. Charis. And, and I was saying that because uh, our keyboardist, her name is Charis. I don't know if you knew that. Her name is Charis. Her name is Grace. It's a great name. As a matter of fact, it's so great, Lori and I, we called our oldest Carissa. We silenced the H, C-H-A-R-I-S-S-A, -S -S -A, Carissa. Grace. We love the word. It's grace. And that was the picture. Jesus grew in grace with God. Grace. And here it means grace meaning causing joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, and acceptance. The last part, Jesus grew in favor with men. Favor with God, favor with men. Grace with God, favor with men. Favor with men, the word defines where you get the word favorite. Jesus really was their favorite. Now, not everybody was Jesus their favorite. 
I mean, if Jesus happened to expose you of your sin, no longer was he your favorite. But as a person, they liked him. They really liked him. They wanted him in their friendship group. You know, they befriended him. They wanted Jesus. He was a favorite. They liked Jesus. Again, what's our theme? Connecting with Jesus. This is who Jesus was. So Jesus, as a growing up, Jesus in his teen years grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and favor with man. Let's go to the third part. Let's go to his baptism. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. It's the story of John the Baptist, and it kind of goes on about John the Baptist. We kind of come in right onto this part. John the Baptist is talking to a crowd of people. He says, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, who? Jesus. He will baptize you. Who? The crowd. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, they got baptized... Today, we look back on baptism. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably seen multiple baptisms. I just have a quick question. How many here have been baptized in water? Would you raise your hands? Just go ahead. Okay. God bless you. And if you haven't and you're a follower of Jesus, look, look to do that. It's really a place that is liberating in the faith to follow through. You get baptized. We look back. Baptism's common. Many have been baptized. But it was not common back then. John the Baptist, he like started something. He was revolutionary in everything he did. And, and baptism was a picture of you, need, you are sinners. That's what he said. You're sinners. You need to get baptized. Turn to God. You need to get baptized. Turn to God. And so people came in hordes down to the Jordan River. And John and his disciples would baptize them in the Jordan River. Thousands would be baptized in that Jordan River. Remember, Israel does not have a lot of fresh water. So they get baptized in the Jordan River. This was happening, John 3, 16. Jesus comes down, he gets baptized. Now, here's a big question for you. Why did Jesus get baptized? I mean, people get baptized because they're sinners. Jesus is not a sinner. Why did Jesus get baptized? The Bible says that talks about you get baptized for the remission of your sins. Remission, have you ever, ever submitted a remittance form? It's a setting back, it's the completion, it's the fixing of the sins. Your sins have been completed. They've been washed away. Jesus, that's the you know, picture of baptism is that. But Jesus goes into the waters of baptism. Why does he get baptized? He is the perfect Lamb of God, sinless Lamb of God. Why, why does he have to get baptized? If anyone on earth does not have to get baptized, it's Jesus. Yet he got baptized that day. Hmm, there's a good question. Tackle that one. Largely, because the Father sent him to start his ministry at the point, death and resurrection. You see, baptism represents dying, and Jesus would go to the cross and die. Jesus would be the first in the resurrection. And all of us who die in Christ resurrect with him. He was number one. We're number whatever that is. So his ministry started at the baptism. And from that moment on, you see, you watch Jesus, the gospels happen. From that moment on. When you think about it, I got a call uh, about two days ago from a guy from Napanee. He called me on the phone and he introduced himself and didn't ring a bell. He says, do you remember me? And I didn't. He says, you baptized me in the Jordan River. You'd think I'd remember that. Well, I do now. I just didn't know his name. Um, back 10 years ago, 
our church with two other churches joined together. We went on an 11-day trip to Israel. I baptized a number of people in the Jordan River. He was one of them. In that river experience, in the Jordan River experience, it's an amazing experience. It was for me. It's an amazing experience because in the Jordan River, think about Jesus going into the river. Now, prior to Jesus, many had been baptized. They would go in and they would confess their sins. You know, I committed adultery. I did this. I stole from here. I did this, right? Whatever their sins were, then they got baptized. It's one of the reasons when we get baptized, we take a moment to share our testimony. We just don't want a cookie cutter, right? Because there's something significant. You don't have to share your sins, but just share what does it mean to be baptized. Share something of the testimony. They did that in Jesus' day. That's why we want to try to do something similar to our, to our day. The waters were filled with the sins of the people, you know, figuratively. They got baptized, sin come up new in Christ, new in Christ Jesus, new in their faith, new in God. They would hope, you know, go on with the remissions of their sins been forgiven. That was the idea. When Jesus went into the waters that day, he went in sinless. When he came up out of the waters, he was drenched with the sins of everyone who had been baptized. I get goosebumps when I think about this. He came up drenched in their iniquities, in my iniquities and yours. When Jesus came out of the waters, he carried our sins to the Father. What a beautiful picture of Jesus in his baptism. Oh, I could stay on that for a while. Let me take you to the last part. He comes up out of his baptism. It takes you to the last part of of, of of where Jesus is about to go into the wilderness, knowing that when, when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, the Father spoke the words, this is my Son in whom I love and am well pleased. The Father is saying, the devil no longer has access to you. I've broken the chains of Satan on your life. No longer addiction has to hold you captive. You are not of this world. You are not bound by this world. Jesus Christ has set you free. You're free in Jesus I'm so thrilled with the song we sang this morning. Colwyn got a hold of me this week and she said, hey, I want to do this song in Jesus' name. And I got so excited. I said, yes, because I've been wanting that song to be taught for a long time. But I was too scared to do it because apparently it's a hard song to teach. And, but in Jesus' name, we sang that very first song. God is fighting for us. God is on our side. He has overcome. Yes, he has overcome. We will not be shaken. We will not be moved. Jesus, you are here. Go ahead. If you have it on, on the screen, say it together with me. I will live. I will not die. The resurrection power of Christ alive in me, and I am free in Jesus' name. That's great. In Jesus' name. That's what he did for me. That's what he did for me. And then we come to chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days and night he was tempted by the devil. I want you to note the very first part of verse 1. Full of the Holy Spirit. He went out full of the Holy Spirit, where Satan would go after him. For 40 days and 40 nights, his ministry is starting. 40 days and 40 nights, did not eat, did not drink, fasted in the wilderness. We've been to Israel. If you've been to Israel, we've seen the areas barren, barren land. We're not talking like a desert was, you know, the Sahara Desert. That's not the desert. The desert is with cliffs and, and crevices. If you've looked at, if, I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon or you've been to some of the Dakotas in the U.S. and, and you've got where it's, it's not like blowing sand, but it's just rock upon rock upon rock. That's where Jesus was, cliffs, crevices. 
And for there he lived 40 days, the devil went after him. Now you can picture the ledges where he would take him to and he would tempt Jesus. And in the mind of, of Satan, he still doesn't get this. He thinks that when we are physically weak, we are also spiritually weak. But he doesn't get this. I don't think he ever will because I find his tactics are the same today. Jesus went out in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And when the devil went after him, here's how he tempted him. And it's a whole message in itself. I'm not going to preach it. Here it is, though. It came down to this. The temptations were threefold. Would Jesus use the fullness of the Spirit for self-service or not? That was the temptation. In other words, are you going to use it for you, Jesus? And so he tried to get Jesus to satisfy himself. I wonder how many of us would have passed that test. Use what the Spirit has given me for my benefit. And three times Jesus hit it out of the park, saying, it is written. And he went back to the word, I am here to serve my Father. And I only do what I see him do. I will not serve myself. Thus, the journey to the cross. Because if he served himself, he never would have taken that journey. I'm here to serve my Father. That's why when we're told, are you going to follow Christ? The, the depiction Jesus said, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. You can't just follow me and have everything serving yourself. Deny yourself, pick up your cross. The temptation was about, would you satisfy yourself with the provision of the fullness of the Spirit? I want to draw your attention to that. And, and of course, Jesus spoke, it is written, it is written. Now you come down to verse, what is it, verse 14, Jesus coming out of the wilderness. And as he comes out of the wilderness, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. I want to draw your attention to something here. It's very strategic. Every translation has the same thing. Verse 1, he went out in the fullness of the Spirit. He came back after having been assaulted by the devil for 40 days, 40 nights, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He went out in the fullness. He came back in the power. See how... This is where the devil doesn't get it. The devil thinks that if he can cause you to be physically weak, if he can take every... He tried this with Job. If he can take everything around you, if he can take everything around you, you'll have nothing left to serve God. He doesn't get it. You take everything around me, then all I've got is Jesus. And forget that I'm going to be weak. I'll be stronger than I've ever been. You, you take my health, you take... You take this, you take that, you throw this at me, you throw that at me. Now, can I go back to those words again? God is fighting for us. God is on our side. He has overcome. He has overcome. We will not be shaken. We will not be moved. Jesus, you are here. I will live. I will not die. The resurrection power of Christ, alive in me, I am free in Jesus' name. The devil will never get this one because the devil is all about self-satisfaction. But if I've died to me, and he has no hold on me if I live for Christ. Hallelujah. Whew, feeling good. He came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown. He goes into the synagogue. And he's a rabbi. Uh, rabbis basically could memorize. If you rabbi, in order to be rabbi, like in today, if you get your doctoral degree, you have to write a thesis. If you were to be a rabbi, you had to have memorized the Torah. 
the first five books of the Bible the rabbis could recite by memorization. That's pretty intense. That's pretty intense. I mean, how many scripture verses do you know? How many scripture verses do I know? Certainly cannot recite the first five books of the Bible. Jesus went into the synagogue, and we have a picture of a synagogue here. This is not the synagogue in Nazareth. Lori and I did visit a synagogue in Nazareth. It was rebuilt, built a few hundred years ago. Would have been the synagogue of Jesus, and I couldn't find the picture. That's why I couldn't put it up. But it's probably better putting this picture up because this is an old synagogue. This is actually an excavated synagogue of where Jesus actually did go. It's in Capernaum. We visited there. Capernaum, beautiful little town and um, beautiful little area. Never really grew up again. And in Capernaum, this was where Simon Peter, uh, mother-in-law, was healed supernaturally by Jesus. The house is right beside. Jesus would have been in this synagogue. He would have taught from this synagogue. On this day, chapter 4, on this day... When Jesus went into the synagogue, there'd be triple doors at the back of the synagogue. There'd be pillars around the perimeters of the synagogue. And then there's, a, there's seats around the perimeter. And then people would sit on the floor. Women one side with their children, men on the other side. The rabbi would go to the front to the lectern. And he would be handed the scroll. Not a Bible, a nice leather Bible that I have. To, no, he would be handed a scroll. On the scroll was Isaiah. Jesus would have begun to read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There is so much in these words. Another day. But when Jesus spoke those words, he rolled up the scroll. Now normally what happens, the rabbi reads the scripture, then he would give commentary on the Scripture. That's what would happen. Jesus reads that Scripture, rolls back up the scroll. The next eight words changes everybody's lives. The next eight words. Here they are. You ready for them? Verse 21. Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Hallelujah. Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The word fulfilled comes from the Greek word. The Greek word is plero, means to take a hollow vessel and for the first time fill it. So you have this vessel, this, this basin, this jar, whatever the vessel is, waiting the whole purpose, the whole purpose of the life of this vessel, the entire purpose, the vessel has no other purpose than to one day be filled. Now, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa, no wonder they were astonished. They were amazed at him. And then he must have said some other words because there was great conversion on that day. This day, the scripture is fulfilled. Salvation has come. Kind of like the story I shared a couple weeks ago, if you remember, Jesus was in the temple, 16 bowls lit up, for the Feast of Tabernacles, they were living in booths. After seven days, they tore the booths down, turned out the lights. On the eighth day, Jesus walked back into the temple just before his crucifixion. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Come to me. Come to me. I, I came across a story. I want to close with this story. There was an art teacher in art class. It was a painting class. The students were all, all in front of their canvases. They were blank. They were ready to be painted upon. They were waiting instruction from their teacher. 
And the art teacher gave them this instruction. I want you to paint peace. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, how do you paint peace? So they went and started painting. One painted a picture of a beautiful little baby asleep in her mother's arms. Another painted a picture of uh, a beach front. Another painted a picture of the starry hosts of the sky at night. Another a picture of the water on the sea calm. Another a picture of a meadow and the sheep grazing in the meadow. They were painting pictures of peace. But there was one who painted a picture and the entire back part of the canopy was all filled with dark and black and angry clouds. And there was lightning streaking across the sky. And the trees were bowed over and limbs were breaking in the storm. And the sea was raging and smashing against the cliffs. But on the cliffs there was a nest. In the nest was an eagle. The eyes were closed. The eagle was sleeping. That was the picture. I was thinking somebody in that room captured peace. They really captured peace. I think if we were to take a text in the Bible, we would turn to the text where in Scripture it talks of Jesus in the boat at the bow. And the storm was raging around. The disciples were all anxious and fearful. And Jesus was fast asleep. See, peace is not the absence of storm. Peace is that in the midst of the storm, the storm can't touch you. Not true? We always look for the storm to be gone. And that's not wrong, but that's not where you find peace. Peace is in your storm. That's why I don't think we can understand when we try to connect with Jesus. When we go through storms, we shouldn't be coming, oh, I'm just surviving, you know, just by the skin of my teeth. I can barely get through. I'm just dragging. I'm limping, you know. And we understand the storms beat us up. But as the devil didn't understand when Jesus went into the wilderness, that when you've lost everything, you really still have everything. You have God. You have him. The psalmist said it so well. God is our refuge, Psalm 46, and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most holy where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. And then that's that famous verse. So be still. Finish it. So be still and know that I am God in the midst of your storm. How do we connect with Jesus? It's all of that. It's all of that. Today, maybe we just need to reconnect with Jesus. If you're watching online, to reconnect with Jesus. Don't let another moment, don't wait for the storm, don't wait for the tragedy, don't wait for the trauma because that will come and go. If you don't decide now, we may not decide then. Today's the day. Today's the day. I invite you, would you join me in standing? We're going to pray. I'm just gonna ask if you would close your eyes and 
Just bow your heads for just one moment. Close your eye, bow your head. I have a question for you, and here's the question. If you're here this morning or if you're watching online today or later in the week or a later time, here's the question. It's very serious. If Jesus is not your Lord, if he is not the source of your peace, if he is not your Savior, then why don't you now invite him to be your Lord and Savior? Invite him into your life. Invite him into your heart. Let him be your transformation. Let him be your Lord. Confess your sins. Turn to Christ as your Savior. So your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. I'm just going to ask very quickly. I'll just ask the ones. And again, if you are watching, if that is you, I, we're going to pray in just a moment. Make this your prayer. If that is you, you've not invited Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Now, if you have, you don't need to respond. But if you haven't, you're saying, Pastor, today I need Jesus. I've not done that. Today I need to do it. Just very quickly, would you raise your hand? I'll pray with you if there's anybody here today. I need Jesus. So the second part of the prayer, and if you prayed that prayer, if you lifted your hand or if you're in your heart, if you're watching online, then we're going to pray in just a moment. Here today, here's what I, I'm prepared to raise my hand on this one myself. I'm asking and I'm raising that I, I recognize I need to more deeply connect with Jesus. I recognize I need to more deeply connect with If that is you as well, would you lift your hand? Okay, many hands have gone up. Let's pray. Father, we pray for maybe the first time person who has called on your name today to invite you to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, we don't wait for another day. We Today, we now, in this hour, we ask, oh God, come into my heart. Wash my sins away. I embrace you as my God, my Lord, my Savior. You are my peace. Lord, I pray that for everyone who raised their hands, that God, we desire a deeper connection with you. Let it be. May we in that place go deeper in your word so we too can say it is written. This is what my Father's mission for me in life is. And we don't have to guess. We are not going to be tossed to and fro like the waves of the ocean. We are steadfast in Christ Jesus. In the midst of the storm, we are secure in you. Let it be, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.